You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 21st of August 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. It's not the attention that China is after. China wants a hostage. China believes that all these protests in Hong Kong are stirred up by foreigners. As a basic rule in China politics, if it's bad, it must be foreign. China detains a representative from the UK's Hong Kong consulate. We'll ask what the UK can do to resolve the matter and whether it still has any influence over Hong Kong's future. My guests Robin Lustig, Linda Yu and John Everard will discuss that and the day's other news, including the latest on Brexit as Boris Johnson travels to Berlin. Plus... The approach has also earned Putin's respect. Finland takes him seriously, which is what every strongman wants, without making him look weak. Could the world learn a thing or two from Finnish diplomacy? I'm Ben Ryland. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the program. I'm joined today by Robin Lustig, journalist and broadcaster and former presenter of The World Tonight, John Everard, who used to be the UK's ambassador to North Korea, and Linda Yu, broadcaster and author of The Great Economists. Welcome all to the program. We'll begin in China, where a Hong Kong-based UK consulate worker, Simon Cheng, has been detained while crossing the border from China back into Hong Kong. The detainment comes at a time of heightened tensions between China and Hong Kong, with pro-democracy protests in the city-state now into their 11th week. And the latest move from China will also put the spotlight on the UK's remaining influence in the region. A one-country, two-systems approach to maintaining freedoms in Hong Kong was a central piece of the legacy that the UK hoped to leave in its former territory, handed over to the Chinese in 1997. Linda, I'll start with you. Uh, Should we read anything into the timing of this detainment? I don't know if we should read anything into the timing, but certainly the overall tensions are certainly there. I think some of the other reports around Chinese pressure on, for instance, uh, companies like Cathay Pacific in terms of um, pressuring their employees not to take part in what has now become a several-month protest over a, I'm sure this is now being long forgotten, what the protests, you know, there was a trigger, which was this um, extradition law, which is highly controversial. But the reason I was suggesting that that's just the trigger is that there has been a longer history of complaints and protests, the umbrella protests from a few years ago, which are all centered on the future of Hong Kong and the future evolution of this one country, two systems model. I think that's what's underpinning quite a lot of this tension. Uh, John, let me ask you about the the uh, the way that China has handled the publicity surrounding this, and maybe the reception that the international press has been giving to uh, the the ongoing protests. Uh, Simon Cheng's girlfriend shared screenshots of online messages that they'd been exchanging, in which he wrote that he was about to pass through the border, and then added at the end of that, "Pray for me." Now, look, obviously, this detainment of Simon Cheng was always going to attract some international headlines. What does China actually have to gain from that kind of attention? It's not the attention that China is after. China wants a hostage. China believes that all these protests in Hong Kong are stirred up by foreigners. As a basic rule in China politics, if it's bad, it must be foreign. And they believe that the UK has taken quite a significant part 
in stirring up these protests. So they they calculate if we hold one of, quote, their, unquote, people, uh, we have a pawn uh, to trade for concessions from the UK to stop Hong Kongers going onto the streets. A frightening example of Chinese brutality, a frightening example, too, of just how wrong China gets this. Robin Lustig, let me bring you in. Uh, do you find that China has been misreading the role of the international press here? Have they have they constantly been on the back foot when trying to deal with the international reaction that has been coming from media outlets in the United States, in the UK and around the world? Well, I do think it's interesting that, that, that China appears to be uh, quite concerned about the sort of international reaction there might be to the way in which it deals with the protests in Hong Kong. Um, I'm by no means an expert on Hong Kong, but I was there in 1997 when the territory was handed back to China by the UK. And I do remember that this uh, one country, two systems formula was always regarded as uh, the best hope. Um, it was always a question mark as to whether it would work in the long term. And I don't think it has really come as, as much of a surprise that the, the, the tensions have bubbled up in the way that they have. Um, it, it was interesting, I thought, at the weekend when you saw these huge protests on the streets of Hong Kong that uh, the security forces took a, appeared to take a step back and, and let them happen. Um, you know, everybody remembers what happened in Tiananmen Square. Um, and it was very different then. It's so far in Hong Kong, it has been different. Uh, China, I think, is worried about the international reaction, and that, to me, is quite interesting. Uh, Linda, travellers in Hong Kong have been reporting that their phones have been checked by by officers, uh, and some people have been forced to delete photos and, and various other information stored on their phones. I mean, tactics like that can be effective up to a certain point, although one does have to wonder how effective they can be in the digital age. But even more so, uh, it on one hand, it does stoke fear into people, and it probably dissuades a lot of people from, from recording information and, and distributing certain types of messages. But then it also gives people a story to tell when they come back to somewhere outside of Hong Kong. And I think that is a real um, challenge to one country, two systems. So just a reminder as to what this is. Um, Hong Kong is to have its own system for 50 years from 1997. And part of that system is having a much more liberal society. Part of that system is having effective rule of law. Part of that system is having a free press. Part of that system is to have the kinds of institutions that... um, people, tourists, businesses um, expect of an international business hub, which is Hong Kong. And that is different than China, which has a high degree of surveillance, which is a one-party state, which doesn't have a lot of these institutions that we just described. So I think it's another example of why the Hong Kong people are nervous that we're about two decades in um, into this 50-year system as to how their lives and um, institutions will be preserved under this one country, two systems model, which, yes, in 1997, it was thought to be, um, as all political decisions are, um, you know, a a compromise. And I think the expectation would be that nobody would know what China was like in 50 years' time. And I think this is where why a lot of people in Hong Kong are worried about the kind of lives that they were expecting to lead for quite a long period of time and how that is changing.
Uh, Robin Lustig, you mentioned you were in Hong Kong in 1997. Now, uh, some people might say that that compromise, the one country, two systems, as Linda put it there, was always going to be an unworkable system, that at some point these two competing systems are going to come up against each other. Uh, what, what were people feeling like back then? Was there a lot of optimism in the in amongst Hong Kongers that actually know this will work going into the long-term future? My, my recollection is not so much that there was a lot of optimism, but that there was a feeling that if if the cards fell right, then it would enable the people of Hong Kong to continue to lead the sorts of lives that they've enjoyed leading. Um, I mean, Linda, of course, is absolutely right. Nobody knew then how China was going to develop, that there was a feeling that perhaps China would become more liberal over time as its economy grew, as it uh, became more of a sort of state capitalist system. Um What's come as a surprise, I think, possibly to the people of Hong Kong and to the people, if they're still around, who negotiated that agreement originally, was that China appears to have been able to continue to be a centralised political entity while being a hugely successful international economic entity. Uh, That perhaps wasn't predicted. Um, We should bear in mind also that Hong Kong wasn't exactly a democracy under British rule either. So the people of Hong Kong are wanting more democracy than they have ever had. It's not that they want to go back to what they had under UK rule. They want a proper democratic system. Um, And they're perfectly entitled to want that, of course. Whether they can do that as part of the current Chinese setup, we we, we just still don't know. I mean, it's really tough. Uh, John, the uh, China has been has come down very, very hard on the international press and international governments, uh, some of which it has accused of helping stoke these ongoing protests. Uh, what does the detainment of Simon Cheng tell us about how China might be treating this as far as their internal affairs go? Should should countries now have reason to fear for the safety of their consulate staff? Concert staff, provided they stay in Hong Kong, I think are safe. It's when you go to, across the border, uh, as we've just seen, uh, China has taken a hostage. Uh, the two things here: uh, one country, two systems. I suppose that's down to me. I was a member of the last joint liaison group. Um, at the time, the calculation was not that China was going to become more liberal. The calculation was that China, brutal, nasty, thuggish as ever, nevertheless respected international agreements that it signed up to. Uh, the big change uh, was Xi Jinping. Up until Hu Jintao, uh, there was a grudging acceptance that a deal was a deal and Hong Kong should have its 50 years. But Xi Jinping looks like he's quite prepared to overturn all that. The elephant in the room that none of us have talked about yet is Taiwan. What the Chinese are really afraid of is not international opinion. Frankly, they don't give a monkeys. What they are afraid of is that by ripping up the one country, two systems agreement uh, with the UK over Hong Kong, that the Taiwanese will conclude that any agreement they might reach on peaceful reunification of the motherland is worthless. And that therefore, Xi Jinping goes down in history as the Chinese president who lost Taiwan. He really, really doesn't want to do that. John Everard, Robin Lustig and Linda Yu will be back in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Yolene Goffan with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thanks, Ben. The UK's Prime Minister Boris Johnson is holding meetings with the German Chancellor Angela Merkel in Berlin. Mr Johnson is expected to reiterate his call for the Irish backstop plan to be scrapped. But the European Union has rejected the possibility of revisiting the issue. 
Embattled Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro has confirmed that his government's officials have been in talks with the Trump administration at the White House for months. Observers believe the talks between the two opposing nations could possibly be aimed at creating an avenue for Maduro to eventually step down. Monocle 24 spoke to Scott Lucas, professor of international relations at the University of Birmingham, about the latest developments. What is significant here is it's Guaido and the Venezuelan opposition who have been sidelined. So in other words, these are direct talks really between the two governments that are taking place. I don't think that means the U.S. is going to confer legitimacy on Maduro. I certainly don't think the U.S. sanctions, which were tightened recently, are going to be released on Venezuela. But I think there is an argument here about a possible transition that will take place. And Donald Trump himself has cancelled a state visit to Denmark after the nation's prime minister said Greenland was not for sale. The U.S. president was scheduled to visit Copenhagen next month. But his suggestion that he was interested in buying Greenland has angered Danes. Back to you, Ben. Thanks, Yolene. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Ben Ryland here with Linda Yu, Robin Lustig and John Everard. The UK will stop sending officials to most EU meetings from September. Brexit Secretary Stephen Barclay has said the move will, in his words, unshackle ministers and officials, as the UK dedicates more resources to preparing for a potentially catastrophic no-deal exit from the union. Robin, is now the time for the UK to be cutting more ties, or will it rather desperately be looking for more friends in the near future? It struck me when I when I heard about this this idea that British weren't going to bother to turn up to meetings anymore that it was a recognition of reality. I mean, it was frankly a waste of time for them to go to meetings at the moment uh, when you're discussing what's going to happen in the EU over the next twelve months, three years, five years. What's the point of a UK representative being there when you have a prime minister who has made it absolutely clear that whatever happens, do or die, as he put it, the UK will no longer be a member of the EU by the end of October. So a recognition of reality. Um, I was talking to somebody just at the weekend with very, very good contacts in Brussels who said that uh, from the day after the referendum, it became clear that the UK no longer had any influence whatsoever in the EU. So I regard this as just a recognition of of a new reality. I I regret it personally, but I I, I do think uh, it it, it makes sort of sense in those terms. Well, um, Linda, Robin does raise a a valid point there that uh, the UK has been quite busy playing this quite theatrical game of chicken, I suppose, with the European Union for some time now. Uh, Given that, was there much chance of these meetings being all that productive? Or perhaps is the flip side that diplomatically, it might have been a nice thing for the UK to turn up and still show that despite everything, we do have some degree of respect for our European neighbours. There's a saying um, in Brussels that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. (laughs) <laughs> and so even though Robin is right, um, ever since the the referendum, the um, the view from a lot of uh, European policymakers is that decisions have moved faster because Britain uh, was no longer a major player. So things around European integration, for instance. Um, so I've heard some of them say that they were actually move, able to move faster towards this ever closer union, the proposals of Emmanuel Macron, the French president, working it out with others. Um That being said, (laughs) what I just said at the beginning is that if you're in the room, then there is, I think... a part um, to to play in terms of discussions, whatever that might be, because we tend to focus on Brexit in economic terms, but there's tons of other issues, security, defense, all of these things are about information, cooperation, and information is one of the most important things to get, even if you're not, um, as it were, 
um, in the chair at a meeting. So I think Britain is going to, I suppose, in September, lose out on that kind of information. John, uh, one does struggle to really uh, get a firm grip on just where the government is at on the Brexit negotiations, or not even negotiations, is it? Brexit process, let's call it that. Uh, on one hand, it's tempting to imagine that it's constant chaos behind that shiny front door at number 10. But then on the other hand, maybe maybe the more rational thinker would say, no, 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 it's OK, someone's got their hands at the wheel. We're just not sure which wheel or who it might be. Uh, look, on this program uh, earlier this week, Terry Stiasny, the journalist, uh, told us that far from playing down the risks of a no-deal Brexit, the government may actually be drumming up the fear of what might happen in the case of a no-deal in the hope that if or when it does happen, we all breathe a sigh of relief that actually it's only mildly awful and not completely catastrophic. What do you make of that? I don't think it's that. I think it's more that the government has talked itself into believing that the European Union, the, the, or the, minus the UK, uh, is more fearful of a no-deal Brexit than the UK is. And that if you bang the table often enough and loud enough and scream no deal, you know, capitulate or no deal, that the EU will negotiate and give away things like the Irish backstop. Uh, that seems to be an almost comical misreading of where the EU is. I hope very much that when uh, Angela Merkel and Boris Johnson meet today, that she whacks him over the head with her handbag several times and tries to get some sense into him. A difficult job at the best of times, I know. Uh, the, the government, you asked at the beginning, you know, we wonder where it's at. The trouble is that it's at several places simultaneously, many of them contradictory. Uh, although there is some kind of coherence uh, between uh, Boris Johnson and Prime Minister Dominic Cummings, uh, there doesn't seem to be much coherence across the cabinet as a whole. And the, e the, the EU is finding the UK as messy as ever to deal with. Uh, and of course, Angela Merkel today, uh, it will be Emmanuel Macron tomorrow. So certainly one to watch on our Boris Johnson schedule. Uh, let's jump along now to a different part of the political spectrum. President Donald Trump has cancelled an upcoming trip to Denmark. The decision comes as the US president made the outlandish, even for him, suggestion this week that the US could potentially buy Greenland. Greenland is an autonomous Danish territory and, as we have been told, not for sale. Here's what Mr. Trump has been saying about it recently. Essentially, it's a large real estate deal. A lot of things could be done. It's hurting Denmark very badly because they're losing almost $700 million a year carrying. So they carry it at a great loss. And strategically for the United States, it would be nice. And we're a big ally of Denmark, and we help Denmark, and we protect Denmark, and we will. Uh, in fact, I'm supposed to stop. I'm thinking about going there. I'm not necessarily definitely going there, but I may be going. We're going to Poland, and then we may be going to Denmark. Not for this reason at all, but uh, we're looking at it. It's not number one on the burner. Okay, uh, Robin, I need to bring up something. Uh, one observation. Trump seems to reference there that uh, Greenland has been operating at a loss for Denmark. It almost sounds as if he's talking about an asset, a company, or perhaps even a used car. But that's the way he sees the world, isn't it? I mean, you just played the clip, a large real estate deal. I mean, that, that is his background. That's the way he sees the world. It's all to do with buying and selling, profit and loss, uh, doing deals. However, I think we're making a mistake. The, the, the thing I think we need to do whenever 
Mr. Trump says something outlandish, is to see what it is he doesn't want us to be talking about. And I was looking up what he was tweeting about before Greenland suddenly became the big Trump story. He was tweeting about a new Fox News poll, which he really objected to because it showed him likely to lose to any one of the main Democratic Party candidates in the presidential election next year. And uh, he said there's something going on at Fox. They're, they're, They're fake news as well, just like everybody else. And he got really upset. The other thing that he was tweeting about was that book, this book that's just come out by his former rather short-lived uh, press advisor, Anthony Scaramucci, uh, which is less than polite about Mr. Trump. Uh, he called Scaramucci another disgruntled former employee. He called him a highly unstable nut job. He didn't want us talking about that. He's perfectly happy for us to talk about Greenland. He's jerking his critics around. He's dominating the agenda, which is what he loves to do. We know from several accounts that if he's not on the headline, on the TV news headlines, he objects. He talks to his people. He says, why aren't they talking about me? He's got what he wanted. Well, indeed, and it is very, very difficult to navigate the news agenda when it does seem that Donald Trump is constantly at the steering wheel as to what we ought to be talking about or will be talking about. Uh, Linda, when you saw this news break a couple of days ago, did you did you think that Donald Trump or even his wider administration were treating this with any degree of seriousness whatsoever? Eh, look, I'll admit, when we spoke about it first on this very program, I seem to recall uh, Jonathan Fenby saying that he wasn't sure where the story came from. He couldn't even possibly believe that Trump had actually said this. But it does seem as if Trump and his wider administration do think that, that Greenland could possibly be for sale. Is it a distraction or should we treat it more seriously? When I first saw the item, it was two sources in the New York Times, a newspaper that President Trump objects to vehemently, but he always treats as a as the paper of record. And essentially what's lying behind it, according to the New York Times initially, is that he had actually raised it um, at a White House meeting because Greenland is, has a huge reserve of rare earths. So these are the minerals that... Um, so it's one of the very few commodities that China has a... Um, a dominant position in. But it turns out Greenland has a large amount of um, of rare earth. So this is the kind of stuff that goes into, for instance, the screen of a smartphone. So there's that's probably the genesis of the story. And then, of course, President Trump, um, the news came out and then President Trump had other things he needed to, uh, uh, to, uh, to maybe knock off the agenda. And um, this meeting with the Prime Minister of Denmark, um, he was supposed to meet her in about two weeks' time. And he actually tweeted um, that he... he said, I, I, I like the people of Denmark. I like the prime minister. She's direct. She said that Greenland is not for sale. So now I don't think I'm going to meet her. Maybe another time. And so I think that's where we are now. Uh, John, Robin does raise a, raise a very valid point that, that Trump is the master of distraction. But as Linda says, Greenland is strategically quite, uh, strategically speaking and strictly only strategically, it could possibly make sense in some sort of parallel universe. How... I mean, how should we be going about uh, stories like this? Should we immediately jump to lampooning the president or taking a a closer look behind the headline? 
I, I think, well, lampoon the president is always fun, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> but th this is distraction. Uh, if you are serious about the rare earths, and Linda's quite right to raise the point, you go to the, the Danes quietly and say, can we please negotiate mining concessions? You don't, you don't have to transfer sovereignty or anything like that. Uh, talking about buying and selling uh, bits of land on this great monopoly board that is Donald Trump's world uh, is, of course, just an attempt to stop people talking about a welcome Fox polls and about books about Trump. Uh, and, and, if, and if I may just make one other point, if, if you want evidence that he is just jerking his critics around, look at the tweet that he put out, which was a, a photograph of some outsized Trump Tower superimposed on a photograph of Greenland. And he said something like, don't worry, folks, I'm not going to do this. He himself was not treating it seriously. He knew his critics would leap in horror at what he said, and it amuses him. He loves being able to pull his critics' tail like that and get them jumping to his tune. Robin Lustig, Linda Yu and John Everard, thanks all for being here. In a moment, doing diplomacy with Putin. Has Finland got something to teach the world? You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. The same stories, the same views dominate global news coverage, as do the same angry voices. But The Globalist goes beyond the noise to unpack what's really happening, to find fresh perspectives and considered voices in current affairs, business and much more. The Globalist, live every weekday at 8am Zurich time, 7am London, 2300 in Los Angeles, on Monocle 24 or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Ben Ryland. Finally today, Monocle's Melkon Charchoglian explains why other nations ought to take note of Finland's approach to diplomacy with its prickly neighbour. Finland has always been a sobering influence on the Russian bear across the border. Its attitude marked by the cordial active neutrality it has more or less pursued since the Second World War. In that vein, when Finnish President Sauli Niinistö announced last week that Vladimir Putin would visit Helsinki today, he said that no subject would be off the table during the bilateral talks. This sounds vague, but the notion is sincere. Finland is always happy to lend an ear, disagree though it might, and it's this political pragmatism that has allowed the country to successfully jockey Russia. Indeed, it has improved relations. The idea of a Finnish businessman hopping on the high-speed link to St. Petersburg for lunch seemed unfathomable even 20 years ago. Now it's a reality, thanks to Finland's level-headed practicality. The approach has also earned Putin's respect. Finland takes him seriously, which is what every strongman wants, without making him look weak. There's a lesson here for other world leaders. It's not about making nice or riling Russia, but taking a firm yet diplomatic stance. That's all for today's program. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio managers were May Lee Evans and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs with Daniel Bache. Monocle's House View will be back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. I'm Ben Ryland. Goodbye. Monocle's House View.